Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. We're pleased to be joined by Colbert I. King, Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for The Washington Post. In his weekly opinions about issues of concern to the District of Columbia and beyond, Colby King has been the unofficial journalistic voice of the city for more than three decades. A native of Washington, Mr. King has been an army officer, a diplomat, an executive director on the World Bank representing the United States. As a congressional staffer, he helped draft the D.C. Home Rule Statute, and for many years, of course, he also served as a writer on the Washington Post editorial board. For all his illustrious international experience, he specializes in the real Washington, where the people live. And that's been relevant to national politics in recent months, as both Republicans and Democrats have intervened on Capitol Hill to stop a controversial criminal code reform that the D.C. Council passed over Mayor Muriel Bowser's veto. It was a significant moment uh, for anyone who's concerned about democracy and D.C.'s unique constitutional status in our system, as well as the issues of crime and criminal justice themselves. Colby King always has something interesting to say, and one of the things I admire about his writing is he does not equivocate. You always know where he stands. So with that, Colby, uh, thanks for being my guest on Times Like These. Well, thank you, Chuck. Uh, it's good to be here, but it's, these days it's good to be anywhere. Listen, I wanted to jump right in and talk about this situation between the District of Columbia and Congress. Uh, the history goes back a long way, but to summarize it very briefly, uh, the Constitution put a bunch of uh, congressmen, many of them historically pro-segregation Southerners, in charge of the district. And it won, through a series of reforms, a measure of autonomy, which empowered it to legislate on its own behalf in the 1970s for the first time. And here we have recently a very strong bipartisan vote to overturn a piece of legislation that had been supported over the mayor's veto by the people's elected representatives in Washington. Tell me why you were concerned about that turn of events and also why, as you wrote, you felt it might have been foreseeable and avoidable if the D.C. government had handled the issue a little differently. I'd like to just get at this question of the Congress's relationship with the District of Columbia, because it's discussed in, in terms of, of race, that this is a majority Black, brown city, and there's these nefarious people on the Hill interfering in our affairs. It's, it's helpful to know how we got to where we are. And it, it goes back, frankly, to the Continental Congress, which was meeting in Philadelphia. And a group of militia from the Revolutionary War had not been paid. So they marched in the Continental Congress, demanding to be paid, and Hamilton and the others uh, called on the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to send a militia to protect them. And Pennsylvania declined to do so and said it's a local matter. Well, eventually, Hamilton negotiated the deal to 
let the members of the Continental Congress go to New Jersey to meet. They got out of that. They took care of the militia members. But in, in writing the Constitution, Madison said, this is never going to happen to us again. Congress needs a piece of land that is its own, where it's not depending upon any state to protect it. And George Washington came up with a piece of property, part of Maryland, part of Virginia, negotiated a deal and got this federal enclave created. And that's what became the nation's capital. A few years later, they created the District of Columbia. But the whole purpose was to give Congress exclusive control over this piece of territory. That's what it is at work even to today. And contrary to what people are saying, we had elected government in the District of Columbia in 1802 and a territorial government, elected leaders. Somebody was appointed to be uh, the, the governor and we had elected government. Washington, D.C. was a swamp. They needed to build it up. So they turned to a guy named, he was, he was a governor, a shepherd, Eugene Shepard, bringing the city up to speed, so to speak, he overslept the budget by millions of dollars. The city was bankrupt. Congress eliminated the territorial government and gave us an appointed government, which remained that way for over 100 years. Congress had a proprietary interest in this piece of federal land. Now, I just say that to put this, this thing in context. Now, the governors of the district on the home rule, which started in 73, is depending on pretty much who was controlling the Congress under democratic control. The oversight has been very benign, but nonetheless, from time to time, there would be interventions from a democratic Congress to, to change or revise something that the city has done. And it's been more strict with, with under Republican control, more conservative control, oversight. But this notion of Congress having a constitutional responsibility for this, for the nation's capital, has been with us from the time the Constitution was written for the reasons that Article One was written, to give them exclusive control of this piece of property so Congress would never be dependent upon any state for its own protection. Right. Sorry for that, but I just need to get that on the record so people understand how, we, how we've come to this point and why we are at this point. So help us understand then what the trade-off was involved in this latest exercise, so to speak, of Congress's supervision over the district. Well, there's no, there was no trade-off. This was an outright rejection of the criminal code revision prepared by uh, the council. What made this perhaps more open to to intervention by the Congress was the mayor vetoed the bill and the veto was overridden. So the bill went to the Congress without the support of the mayor. Uh, there was not unified support for the, for the criminal code revisions. Although there was universal agreement, almost universal agreement that the code needed to be revised a hundred years old. It was archaic in many ways, needed to be brought up to speed. But in addition to that, there were new ideas introduced the code. I wouldn't call them radical, but they were different. Changing of the mandatory minimums requirements. Uh, one such thing that was rather controversial is extend jury trials to people found guilty of misdemeanors or charged with misdemeanors. That had not been fully vetted as it should have been. But I also think that the mayor was very deficient in her intervention. He could have been much more vocal earlier about uh, her problems with that legislation. 
But what we had, which made this different, was that we sent something to the Hill for ratification that did not have solid support of the mayor and the council. Anytime you do something like that, you're leaving yourselves open to, to this kind of intervention. Absolutely, because, you know, just sort of the democratic theory of the case becomes more muddled, right? Yeah. The mayor has a mandate. She was elected, I think, with more than 60% of the vote, if memory serves. And the council has a mandate, but it's not, you know, that, that, gave, that gave the opponents on the hill of this bill something to work with. Sure. But let's talk about the substance and a little bit of the politics of the bill, because this was a bill that, as you say, was going to reduce some of the penalties for high profile crimes like carjacking, at least on paper. And it, it seemed to have been a product of a time a couple of years ago when we were fresh from the murder of George Floyd and people were talking about police reform and criminal justice reform. And it lands on the Hill in a different time where Democrats are on the defensive about issues like defund the police and so on. And the Republicans controlled the House and they managed to get Joe Biden, in effect, and most of the Democratic senators to agree with them. And I just wonder if you feel, based on what you know about the actual reality on the ground in terms of how big a problem crime has become in D.C., you know, how do you parse through the responsibility for this sort of failure, I guess you would say, to get this thing through the Hill as between the people on the Hill and the people in D.C. government? Well, a year ago, a little more than a year ago, February 2022, I wrote then that the city's future was going to be determined by what's happened in the upcoming election in November of 2022, that if the House changed hands, as was predicted, and that there would be a huge red wave, that you can anticipate the, the city having a, a pretty rough time of it with the Republican House, only because, and this is not, I wasn't very impressioned in this, it's because members of the House Republicans had signaled as early as February 2022 that they had the district in their sights, and when they, if they got control of the gavels, that uh, they were going to bring the city back in line. So that was forecast. I'm saying all that to say, knowing that was the case, and knowing the kind of legislation that you were pushing through the council, that was the time to start, as, and especially after November, when it was clear that the Republicans were going to regain control of the, of the Senate House, was to start to do your homework, and that is to get out of the city hall and get up on the hill and start explaining yourselves, and start explaining your legislation. I mean, it's, it's and they didn't do it. Yeah. They shut back and they let somebody else define, define the legislation. It's not a radical piece of legislation. There are provisions that obviously need to be explained. For example, when you change the penalty for a certain crime, you seem to lower the sentencing. You have to look at the context of how have the courts been administering the punishment on the line. And what they were really doing in some cases, we're changing the law to reflect what the courts were already doing as far as the sentencing was concerned. Reducing from the maximum to what is actually the, the performance as it's currently in, in practice. And they didn't do that. They, didn't, they, they allowed the bill to be defined, but they also allowed themselves to be defined as being somehow soft on crime. That could have been better addressed. I don't think you would have the defections that the city experienced from Democrats in the House, but they did not do a good job. They didn't do a good job with the mayor, and they didn't do a good job with Congress. And uh, 
they pay for it. I don't despair because I think they're going to get a criminal code revision through this Congress if they turn their attention to it and remove some of the extraneous things or set aside for consideration. What would you do with something like misdemeanors, uh, charges to misdemeanors? Do you really want to consider extending jury trials to those? There are practical reasons why you probably wouldn't and shouldn't, but they need to be fleshed out. But I wouldn't burden the criminal code revisions with that kind of change. They ought to be considered, but on its merits and at a different time, that can be sought through. But the city is going to have additional problems with this Congress because there's a, there are larger issues at stake. One is which is to say that with the Biden presidency, the city is ungovernable. And they, they will make the city a political football with a view toward getting results in the next presidential election. Well, I think you'd have to say, looking at it just in sheer political terms, that strategy has paid off for them. I would say that this turnabout on the criminal code legislation on Capitol Hill was probably the first time Kevin McCarthy, since he was speaker, played his cards well. And the sort of cascade of votes by Democrats in the Senate was something to behold. And that really speaks, though, Colby, to the wider national political reality, because, of course, all this was against the background of Democratic politicians knowing that this was a, a messaging vote on the Hill, that if they voted, quote unquote, in favor of being soft on crime, they would that would be a 30 second ad packaged against them. And we've seen this movie so many times before. I wonder how you view the merits of the policy choices on crime that are going on right now in the district, sort of as an example of many other cities that are in kind of a similar struggle, where you have this effort to reform a lot of longstanding inequities and justices. But in the short run, they're bumping up against a lot of reality, which is that, I mean, we just saw it in the paper today. Rand Paul's staffer was stabbed out on the street in the city, and that creates both a perception and a reality of a problem and a fear. So how do you work through that? Well, the problem is, is even more acute. Today, they're having a hearing on another piece of legislation that the council passed, in this case, without the mayor's approval, which is police reform legislation. And it's going to face a vote of a resolution of disapproval probably today, this afternoon. They had a pretty rough hearing this morning. Uh, they did not invite the mayor to testify. Of course, they didn't need a testimony because they did not support the legislation. But they had the chairman of the council and the proponent of that legislation, then proponent of the legislation, Charles Allen, as witnesses. And they brought along head of the police union, Pimbleton, to testify against the legislation. So they had a hearing this morning. Owners of the, of the legislation tried to defend what they had done. You had the police union president criticizing the bill, saying it was demoralizing the police force. They said it's a bill to defund the police. And in fact, they have lost roughly three or 4,000 officers in the last four or five years over resignations. And the issue, for example, would be, and this is one of the kind of issues where you get caught up in whether you're trying to defund the police or not. Understandable reform, it seems to me, that they propose, and one that makes sense, is that when it comes to disciplinary actions, that the chief of police ought to be able to carry out disciplinary actions without, as they have to do now in a union contract, negotiate with the union over the disciplinary measures for a police officer. So you have instances of a police officer being fired in one jurisdiction, but because of the, the rules of engagement that we have with the police department, we cannot inform a, another jurisdiction that this officer was fired because of some serious impropriety. 
So that's a change that he put into the reform legislation. The union opposes it. The union says this is demoralizing to the police, it's reducing the size of the police. And this is the drum that's going to be beaten today. And every police union in the country, as they did with the crime bill, will come marching on the, on the House today to say, oh, disapprove this piece of legislation, this second piece of legislation that the council has enacted. Well, I'll go back to the beginning. If you can't get your mayor on board with something like this, you ought to think about the common sense of it politically of sending something like that to the Hill. Democrats or Republicans, doesn't matter which party is in control. They have the authority to approve or disapprove. If you cannot show a united front, then you're going to be in trouble. The opponents will use the mayor's opposition to support their position. And they can say, look, we're doing this in support of the mayor. We're doing this in support of the police union. And I, I'm on this kick because of, we have a larger fish to fry in this session, which is the city's budget, which must be approved by the Congress. If we don't come together on a budget where the mayor and the council are fully behind it, we're going to have the same problem. I want to tap your historical perspective on this kind of welter of issues we've just been talking about. You know, it, it's easy to get into a lot of the inside baseball of these things, but I think what we're bringing out here is that this is a kind of, it's almost like a cyclical drama that's been replayed in different forms, in different locations, in different ways for decades now. And I just wonder if you feel this is just more of the same, a cycle that's just kind of existing on one level and never kind of really getting any further ahead, or whether somehow as repetitious as this may seem, it, there, there are elements within it that bespeak some level of progress relative to the past. I don't know if that question is very clear or not, but is it just the same old, same old, or is there some element of this whole situation where we're having yet another national argument about crime that's inflected by race and that involves issues of autonomy and democracy for uh, this city that is fresh, that is new, and that is encouraging? Well, I think that as that's true of so many things in life, it depends on who's involved and when. As much as you hear this, this criticism or complaints about our lack of statehood, that we don't have voting representation, say, in Congress, the city has, doesn't have voting representation in Congress. You would think that since 1973, when the Home Rule Act was adopted, that there's been no forward progress on, on the question of congressional representation in Congress. Most people don't know this, I guess, but in fact, Congress did pass a bill that did provide for congressional representation, passed a constitutional amendment that provided for congressional representation. I was in, around in the Carter administration at the time. President Carter spoke properly in behalf of that legislation, and it passed. It passed 1978. Congress passed the, the Voting Rights Amendment, giving us voting representation in Congress, and it had to be ratified by 36 states. 1980 came around couldn't get the requisite number of votes. And so the bill expired, but we did get it. It was a major advance. Now, what, what was different? Of course, it was a democratic Congress and you had a, a democratic president, but you also had a bipartisan support for this. Something that's missing now, I mean, and not just uh, with respect to district affairs, this is the most polarized, politically polarized Congress I've seen. And when you have this, this kind of condition, look at the issues around which they're polarized, you're going to have the kind of vote that we had on the city's criminal code reform, same kind of vote likely occur 
with other initiatives that will take place in a Republican-controlled Congress that may be related to race or may be related to class. It's this Congress reflects the times in which we're living. Just as the Congress that passed the constitutional amendment reflected the times in which we were living. We're in a, in a very perilous point, I think, in, in this country. And I, I don't jump to this easily. I mean, it's, I've never seen a situation where you could just assume that 90% of the Democrats are going to vote one way and 90% of the Republicans are going to vote another way. Tell me a time when it was like this, even, even during the period of civil rights legislation, 1964, 65, passing those that bills, there was significant, significant Republican support and both out for this legislation, for that kind of legislation. And, and significant Democratic opposition. Yeah. As I'm sure you're well aware. A significant Democratic opposition. But that, and then give you another example of change, that Democratic opposition is now Republican opposition coming from the same jurisdictions. Yep. And Lyndon Johnson said at the time when the Civil Rights Act was passed, he said, we've lost the South. And uh, Democrats have lost the South. People stayed there. They just became Republicans. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit, Colby, and talk about journalism itself, which has been your career and your passion for so many years. And you were kind enough to send me a copy of a piece you had done in Politico. I think it was in January. Uh, They asked people to respond to a prompt about how they saw the future of journalism over the next 15 years. I think it was a 15th anniversary of Politico at the time. And your response was interesting to me, and I'm going to quote from it, because you took what has lately become, I think, what might be called the traditional view, in some ways, of the role of journalism. I'm quoting now, you lamented the, quote, the wall separating advocacy from objectivity was breached in recent days by journalists. Tailored tales designed to be told by opinionated reporters untethered to fact that was your felicitous uh, phrase there, are, are now sort of prevalent in the media because, as you said, there's, there's money and marketing to be accomplished by targeting, in effect, an echo chamber. Tell me why you felt you had to speak out about that and why you feel so strongly about that aspect of what's going on in journalism right now. Well, it's a world that's changed on me, Jeff. I don't, I don't recognize it. We don't have an editorial section of the paper anymore. It's not called editorial. It's called opinions. Opinions. I joined the paper as an editorial writer. And that is where you're speaking for the newspaper through an editorial board, no byline. This idea of writing an opinion column is something that doesn't come easy, shouldn't come easy. And, and it, it requires not just much skill, but, but experience and, ha- and having something to say. This is what did it for me. I opened up the editorial page, and there is a piece by somebody who says, in the headline, I'm 65, but I'm going to wear a bikini anyway. That did it for me. But it was a very popular piece. It was a very popular piece in terms of time bread, page visits, whatever index you want, views, measurement. It was a success. People came and read it. And it got repeated and repeated and repeated. And that's the value. That's the value in journalism today because to keep the lights on, keep the bills paid, you have to be able to show advertisers that people are reading this stuff. And so the emphasis is less on the substance of the piece or 
or the, the timelines of the subject in terms of the substance of what makes this country turn. But even the, the way we people talk about it, because it was success, it was a success by contemporary standards, it was a success. And that's what journalism is now. I read commentary from the, the high monkey monks and they say, we want to tell a good story. Tell a story. There's no story to be told about a national. Something horrible happened. And it's happening and happening and happening. But there's no story to be told about gun violence. It's like we got to get a nice narrative so people will want to come read what we're writing. No, that's not what we ought to be doing. But that's what we're doing. Because we tell it in a very clever way, in a smooth way. Uh, people will like, oh, I like the way they tell this story. I want to see more of this. And we keep turning it out. And look what we're doing with pandering. So you, you got me on a soapbox on this. Well, when you're 83 years old, you can be this way. I appreciate your unequivocal takes, Colby, because they, they don't come from a place of unearned authority. I mean, you have paid your dues. I, I don't know if I would say you're old necessarily, but you're definitely old school. And I think what you're referring to in what you just said is, you know, I might, I might put it a little differently, but it's a reality, which is that the economic basis of journalism has shifted. And now it's all about the audience. And I think back in the day, the need to sort of maintain a wide base of advertisers who sort of appealed to mass markets and department stores and auto dealerships and stuff like that had a kind of a moderating influence actually on the whole practice of journalism. But no, the, the reader is in charge now for better or worse. In your column in Politico, you talked about the sort of encroachment of a kind of entertainment uh, spirit or entertainment values into the news, right? And I think that's what you're getting at is that we're trying to capture readership based on uh, entertainment values, uh, bells and whistles, as opposed to just telling them what's going on. Well, my point is that we're, we're becoming part of the entertainment industry in the sense that we need what theaters need and what circuses need and what stage shows need. We need an audience. And so we're looking to, to build an audience, to get an audience, to attract more people in, to greet us. And uh, that means giving into the temptation to pander. And I think it's, you know, I hate to sound that cliche a slippery slope, but then in fact you are when you practice the kind of journalism that will draw attention, but for all the wrong reasons, because you want to get people to look after you. So one of the things I like to do, Colby, with all of my guests on the podcast, sort of toward the end, which is where we're reaching now, is, is touch on something a little bit biographical or personal. And fortunately, you provided the material for that in your eloquent column, uh, about Black History Month. It ran some time ago, of course, in February when that was Black History Month, but you evoked the uh, name of your, I, I hope I'm getting this right, great-great-grandfather, yeah. Isaiah King, who served in the colored cavalry from the state of Massachusetts in the Civil War. I was blown away by that reference. I did not know that part of your history. I found it fascinating and sort of reflected on the fact that a person like Isaiah King might be more salient today, might be more before the public, that aspect of history, the role of the Black troops in the Civil War is better known. And yet for all that, Black History Month is still necessary. Give us a little precy of why you found that sort of a cause for ambivalence. 
Well, the founder of Black History Month always envisioned that there would be a they would come where we wouldn't need a Black History Month, that the history of African-American involvement in the vote with this nation would be part of the regular culture, part of regular ed- education. Now, that hasn't happened. But, you know, I, when, you, when you grow up in a, in a segregated society, as I did, de jure at one point, then continued de facto, you learn Black history because it had to be taught in our schools to refute the notion that we were inferior. From grade school to junior high school, every textbook I got was used. It had been handed down from the white schools. Division one is what they were called in, in those days. Division one for white students, division two for black students. All of our books came from division one. They all have been marked, they've been used. I don't recall getting a new textbook until sometime maybe around the ninth grade. So the teachers had to, not only our teachers, but our parents and our school teachers, they had to teach us that we were too equal, that we were not unequal, that we were not inferior. And so they had to, if you'd walk into my school, Stevens Elementary School, first school for children of freed enslaved people, 21st and L Street, where Amy Carter attended school, Amy Carter put her in public schools. You, you would see how our walls decorated with photos and stories about Black achievements and Black achievers. They had to do that. Otherwise, we would have accepted the role that had been assigned to us, that we were inferior. They had to go out of their way to do that. And unfortunately, that's still, still needed. But it wasn't a matter of someone trying to deliver propaganda. It was this matter of just correcting the record. And letting us know that here are things that had happened that reflected black achievement, that there was no way of for us to know about it. They didn't the want us to know about it, that it was denigrated, whatever had been done. And so that was the whole purpose. Unfortunately, that's still needed today. Not so much as to let white kids know, but let black kids know as well. I mean, it's 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 amazing what you don't learn about yourself if you just rely on what's in the textbooks that are handed down from white schools and what you're told by the way in which you're treated. No, I I can't sit at the lunch counter at the drugstore two blocks from my house. That tells me something. You know, I'm not sitting around saying, oh, they don't like me. No, they're showing me. I don't want you at the lunch counter. I'm not liking yourself. But we're talking about generations of Blacks who grew up with this and had to cope with this. And it informs our, our thinking, even to this day, to know that people officially, with the law behind it, said, you are inferior. And to show it, you cannot come to my movie theater. I can go to yours. You can't come to my movie theater. You can't eat in my restaurant. I can eat in yours, but you can't eat in mine. And that's the reality that we live with. And in a de facto way, and of course, socioeconomic reasons, that's the way it is now for a lot of young people of color. Well, Colby, I can't thank you enough for sharing that perspective with the podcast. So I recommend everybody look at Colby's column from February 10th, 2023, with that really a tangible, concrete sense of what it meant to be a young person growing up in segregated Washington, D.C. And somebody who just laid that out without 
a whole lot of rancor, but with just a lot of facts, linking it with his uh, ancestry and the heroism of his great-great-grandfather in the, in the Civil War. And it, it epitomized Colby King's opinion journalism. It was unequivocal. Uh, it was informative. And it was really infused with the sense of journalistic mission. So, Colby, you've been more than frank during this conversation. And so I'm going to thank you once again for being on the podcast. Thank you. And to extend you an invitation to do it again sometime soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>